6. That's where we're going to be this evening as we continue our series through the Gospel of John. And when you come to John chapter 6, we come across a miracle that Jesus did that had such a huge impact on the people who were there and witnessed it. And it was just such a huge thing that all four gospel writers wrote about it. It's one of the only things that we can point to that says, you know, all four gospels tell this story. And so it had to have been something huge that all of them decided to include it in their accounts of Jesus's life. The miracle itself was really simple, if a miracle could be simple. But I mean, and you think about the pieces of it and what made up, it's kind of a simple, straightforward miracle, yet it had such, uh, it created such profound conversations about its meaning that it forced people who were following Jesus at the time to consider, should I still follow Jesus after this? I mean, I mean, the conversation that followed, it was kind of divisive for a lot of people. We're going to look at that tonight. And, and, and many of them, I'm, I'm sad to say, decided, I don't want to follow Jesus now. All because of the meaning of this miracle. Now, the miracle I'm referring to starts off with two very basic elements. Things that are commonplace to every single person back in Jesus' day. Bread and fish. Now, these are not uncommon items even today. I mean, we would say bread and fish are the staple of many people's diet, unless you're doing keto. If you're doing keto, it's not a part of your diet, not the bread anyway, but the fish. Bread and fish, very simple things. You have a very large crowd and some small bread and small fish. Emphasis on the small. By this point in John 6, Jesus has quite a reputation. He has quite a following. Um, people know him as a miracle worker, as a healer, as somebody who has a lot of compassion. He has been amazing people with, uh, with his miracles. And John's gospel tells us that on this particular day, a huge crowd comes out to listen to what Jesus has to say. It's the, John's gospel says that there were about 5,000 men there. Now, that doesn't mean there weren't any women and children. In fact, we know that there were women and children present as well. Matthew's gospel tells us that there were 5,000 men as well as women and children. I don't know why they only counted the men, but culturally, for whatever reason, when they had a large gathering of people, they only head counted the guys for some reason. But the gospel is very clear. There were more than just men there. So let's just say that there were 5,000 men and let's just say a good number of them are married. We can make that assumption, right? A lot of them are married. And let's just say on the very conservative side, every one of these married guys had a couple kids, which we know families then grew very large. So you could say there was 5,000 at a minimum, could have very easily been 10,000, maybe more like 15,000. Some estimates say that there was over 20,000 people that had just kind of come out to this area to find Jesus. Now, to give you just a little bit of perspective, have you been in Bud Walton Arena? Many of us have. That's where the Razorbacks play basketball. The seating capacity of, of Bud Walton Arena is a little over 19,000 people. So if the math is correct, you, there are those that make the argument that on this day of this miracle that started with just a few loaves of bread and a few small fish, ended up feeding a group of people that could have very easily filled Bud Walton arena to capacity. 
And we don't know the exact number that were there, but we know there was at least 5,000. It was probably much more than that. At any rate, this is a very large crowd of people. So Jesus and the disciples, they have a discussion together. How are we going to feed all of these people? They came out there. There's not like there's a Dairy Queen close by. They're out there in the middle of kind of nowhere. And so they're like, how are we going to feed this? And the disciples have this question. It would take, I mean, months and months of wages just to, to give them one bite. And this is the famous part where Jesus says, oh, you go feed them. I mean, this is, I'm, I'm kind of merging some of the gospel accounts of this all together. Well, that's all discussion is over. Jesus takes the bread and the fish. Peter was the one that said, well, we've got this. And it almost has the feeling like what good can come from just a few pieces of bread and fish? But Jesus like, bring them to me. Jesus prays over it. His disciples at this point have grown from six followers now to 12. He's got all 12 together with him. And he just starts passing this all out. And right before people's very eyes, the bread and the fish, they, become, they, they just start to multiply. Now, I've tried to visualize, what did this look like? I don't know. Was it just like, like just out of nowhere, just there it was? I think so. But they passed it out to all of these thousands of people. And the Bible says they ate till they were full. And then Jesus sent his disciples out to collect, over the, to collect the leftovers. And guess what? They had 12 basketfuls of bread left over when they were. This is the stuff that they bit and fell off and there was a piece on the ground. 12 basketfuls. This was an amazing miracle. This, this miracle put Jesus over the top in many people's minds. If you keep reading through the gospel accounts, John's especially, the crowd that was there that day, they were so impacted, they were so moved by this massive feeding of this large crowd that they were ready that day to push Jesus into leadership. I mean, leadership like on a throne. They're like, you need to be the king of the Israelites. We're, we're going to force you. And this was what was going through their mind. We're going to force you to be our leader. Got your Bibles? Look at John chapter 6, verse 14. Listen, listen to what they're thinking. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, what was that sign? The, the massive feeding of people. Once they saw that, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Okay, they're, they're, they're connecting some dots. That's, this is the guy. Jesus, verse 15, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Again, this is another evidence that God is, or Jesus is both fully God and fully man at the same time because he knows what they're thinking. This is also evidence, again, like we talked about last week, that Jesus is completely in control. He's already planned out perfectly the timeline and the circumstances involved that would bring about salvation to all people. And I can tell you that Jesus, sitting on a throne, ruling over the people like a king, was not in his vision. It was not in his plan. No matter how many people wanted him to do that, that was not what he was going to do. And so what he does is he withdraws from this crowd and he goes up onto the mountaintop. And he tell, before he goes, he tells his disciples, it is time to go. There's like a little bit of urgency. Not tomorrow, tonight. I want you to get in the boat, and I want you to sail towards Capernaum, which is a few towns over along the coast of the Sea of Galilee. And so they get in the boat, and they take off, and Jesus slips up into the mountains so he could be alone. 
And the Sea of Galilee, just out of curiosity where they're at, has anybody with your own eyes seen the Sea of Galilee before? Yeah, a few of you. I mean, it's, it's a remarkable thing. But when you say the Sea of Galilee, you get this impression that this is this massive body of water. And it's really not. The Sea of Galilee is really just kind of a small, freshwater lake is what it is. Um, it's surrounded by mountains. It's, it's a very beautiful place. For many Israelites, the Sea of Galilee is, is a popular vacation destination. Tiberias, which is a town along the Sea of Galilee, very near to where this happened, that's a, it's a big place now. People come there to vacation. If you can imagine, can you imagine people swimming and skiing and stuff on the Sea of Galilee? It's a vacation resort now in many places. But back then, this is the, where the bulk of Jesus' ministry took place. At its widest point, I mean, the Sea of Galilee is kind of shaped like a heart. This is a satellite view of it. At its widest point, from east to west, it's only about seven to eight miles. This is not a big, you can see all the way across on a clear day. From north to south, at its longest point, it's only 13 miles. In fact, if there was a walking track all the way around the Sea of Galilee, it would only be 32 miles. We're not talking about a massive sea here. We're talking about a freshwater lake that's not that big. It's beautiful, surrounded by mountains. And this is where Jesus spent a good part of his, this lake. The places around this lake started a revolution that continues on to this day. So the disciples, they set out rowing across the lake. Jesus slips away to the mountains, which if you... If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. There's hills and mountains all around it. And that night, it says the disciples were rowing across the Sea of Galilee. Um, they encountered a storm or weather. Um, John's gospel says that it was a strong wind and blowing the waters that, that grew rough. That's kind of the description. This is the night that Jesus comes walking out to them on the water. Have you heard that story? I mean, this is, John even talks about that Jesus came, came out to them. Now, for some reason, John doesn't tell the other famous thing that happened. Do you remember what the other famous thing that happened that night? Peter walked on the water too. You know, Peter said, if that's you, tell me to come. John doesn't give us all those details. We know that from the rest of the Gospels. So the feeding of the 5,000, they want to make Jesus their king right there. He slips away. The disciples cross the water. Storm comes up. Jesus famously walks out on the water. Peter does too. But let's pick up where, look at John chapter 6, verse 20. This is what the details John gives us. But he said to them, this is Jesus standing outside the boat on the water, it is I, don't be afraid. And then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading, which is another little miracle that often gets overlooked. I mean, Jesus climbs into the boat, and immediately they were on the next, next where they were supposed to go, it's like, they blinked and they were there. I don't know if this was their uh, Star Trek, Scotty, beam me up moment. I don't, I don't know exactly. But something happened. Jesus climbs in the boat and then all of a sudden they were where they were supposed to go. Well, the next day, this massive crowd of people, they didn't go anywhere. They, they obviously endured the storm as well on, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee and when they wake up the next morning, they're looking for Jesus because of this amazing thing that happened. They, I mean, it's like they didn't go home, really. I mean, there was still a lot of people. And they were like, where is Jesus? And they realized that Jesus had given them the slip in the middle of the night. They saw the disciples leave, 
but they knew that Jesus didn't go with them. And then they found out, hey, Jesus isn't here. And like I was saying, the Sea of Galilee is not a huge body of water. So it did not take long for the, this crowd of people to figure out where Jesus went. Some of them, the Bible says, hopped in the boats and they sailed off to Capernaum, um, which is a few miles away. We can imagine others of them, you know, just walked around the shore all the way to, to where it is. So if you could show, if I could put that Sea of Galilee map back up there for a second. Over here on the left-hand side, I don't know if you can see it, um, where those little kind of the green squares are, that's about in the area where they believe the feeding of the 5,000 happened. And then up towards the top, not all the way to the very point, but just to the left of that, that's where Capernaum is. And so they would have sailed across that upper northwest uh, region. So people would have gone across in the boat, and they would have come around on the land. Anyway, they chased after Jesus, and it did not take them very long to get there. And so did everybody go? Well, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say that 20,000 people followed him. But we do know this. Pretty good-sized crowd of people followed after Jesus. Look at 25, verse 25. Here's what happens, and now we're getting into everything I just said was introduction. Now we're to the meat of the sermon. I got time. Verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, which is a respectful way of saying to teacher, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, verse 26, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Now hold on just a minute. Is this Jesus flipping the script here? Is this a different version of Jesus than they saw the day before? It's almost like Jesus is saying, now let's get something straight. I know why you're here. That's what Jesus is saying. I know why you came over here. It's because you're looking for your next free meal. That's what Jesus meant. It's exactly what he meant. You're not here because you saw something amazing, like a few loaves of bread and a few fish multiply before your very eyes. No, no, no. You're here because you ate and your belly was full yesterday, and now you want me to do that again for you today. And I don't think that was the answer that the crowd was looking for. I mean, they said, hey, when did you get here? And it's like, and, and I'm ad-libbing a little bit, but it, it feels like Jesus is saying, who cares about that? Who cares when I got here last night? You followed me over here for all the wrong reasons. And their motivation for chasing after Jesus was all wrong. And Jesus is about to set them straight. We're not going to read every verse, the rest of the verse of these chapters, but the rest of John chapter 6 Jesus is going to drop four truth bombs on top of this crowd. That's the only way I can describe it. He's going to give them four truth bombs, and as he's dropping these truth bombs on them, many who experience this miracle of the feeding of 5,000 will become confused, they will become conflicted, and many of them will not be sure if they still want to follow Jesus after he drops these four truth bombs on them. In fact, at the very end of chapter 6, it says many people who were following Jesus up to this point decided not to. Now, was Jesus upset with them for following him across the sea to the town of Capernaum? 
I don't think he was upset with them. I don't read that. See, it's, sometimes it's hard to read emotion into things. I don't believe he was upset with them. Jesus had a lot of compassion on people. But when he sees these people following after him, and he knows they're following him for all the wrong reasons, he sets the record straight with this first truth bomb. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. This is also in the app if you'd prefer to watch there. But here's truth bomb number one he lays on these people. He's like, what people really need isn't food, but life. This is the message he's going to give them. Hey, what people really need, it's not food, it's life. He's almost like, you people are looking for something physical. And that's exactly what attracted them to Jesus. That's what they thought Jesus could provide ongoing physical nourishment, an ongoing, never-ending supply of bread and fish. But ultimately, from Jesus' perspective, it's not food that they really need. It's not full bellies. It's, that's not what they need. But life, more specifically, Jesus will say, eternal life. And there is a huge difference between what these people want and what Jesus is offering. There's a huge difference between what Jesus is offering, what these people want, and I'm just gonna let the cat out of the bag. If you haven't read this yet, they do not come together in unity. In fact, by the time Jesus is done talking, they still just want food, and Jesus just wants them to believe in him. They're not gonna come together in this chapter, but Jesus will try to explain while their, why their motivations are all wrong by dropping these truth bombs. Look at verse 27. Jesus said, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Again, what Jesus just said here is in sharp contrast between what the crowd wants and what Jesus is offering. It's a proven medical fact that if you don't eat, you will eventually die. We agree on that, right? We have to have food to sustain life. But Jesus is communicating to a crowd that their focus on food is not the most important thing to sustain life. There's a disconnect here. What they thought they needed was the most important thing. We need food to survive. Jesus is saying, that's not the most important thing. You know, honestly, I don't think people have changed a whole lot in 2,000 years of history. I think like back then, there usually is a pretty sharp contrast between what we think we want and what we actually need. If you're a parent, you know this very well. Because you have to deal with this on a regular basis. You try to parent and raise and lead your children to bridge that gap between the difference between what they think they need and what we know as parents what they actually need. Or am I the only parent that wrestles with that one? Do your kids not have a growing want list? And you're like, you don't need that. You need this. Rarely do those things come together at this stage in their life. A similar thing is happening here between Jesus and this large crowd of people that followed him across the sea. And just like being a parent, sometimes your kids get it, and sometimes they don't get it. This is one of those situations where the crowd doesn't get it. Jesus will explain it multiple different ways, but they do not get what Jesus is talking 
about. He drops this truth bomb on them, and it flies right over their head. They're not going to track with what he's trying to communicate. If you keep reading, this crowd continues to stay focused on food, and they're having a very difficult time understanding that Jesus is talking about spiritual realities. They're focused on physical realities, bread and fish. Jesus is talking about spiritual realities, faith and eternal life. Jesus is going to enter into further dialogue with this crowd about who he really is and about what they really need. Jesus is the master communicator, and so what they think they need is food. So Jesus says, well, let's talk about food. He's like, hey, you guys are looking for food that spoils, but I have food that will last for eternal life. I think Jesus is trying to put this conversation into language that they'll understand. Look at verse 28. So they, they then asked him, what must we do to do the, the work that God requires? Okay, you're trying to tell us something, Jesus, so what do we got to do? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this to believe in the one he has sent. This is a very consistent message of Jesus. What does God want from you? To believe. That has not changed in all of these years. What does God want from us? To believe, to have faith. That's it. Why did John write the gospel? So that we could believe. That's the whole point. And so Jesus says, I'll tell you what God wants. Let's boil it down for you. He wants you to believe. So in verse 30, they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe in you? In other words, okay, you want us to believe? Prove it to us. It's almost like, did I not just prove it yesterday? So now they're like, do some more signs. But they're still focused. Give us another meal, and then we might believe in you. What will you do? And then in verse 31, they go way back in the Old Testament. They said, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. It's interesting some of the conclusions about Jesus that this crowd comes up with. See, we already know that the day before this crowd of people, they were willing to make Jesus their king because he did this great miracle, this sign. Because they wondered, maybe he is the Messiah. And because they felt that way, Jesus left them. He left and went to the mountainside. And then they they also draw this comparison. During the Exodus, the Israelites were rescued from slavery. God rescued them through Moses. And for the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness before God gave them the promised land, he fed them with bread from heaven called manna. Now we're not going to dive into that much. If you'd like to, Exodus chapter 16 is where you're going to want to go for that. Exodus chapter 16 explains the whole thing about bread from heaven and manna and what God did for the Israelites. But for 40 years, God fed them every day. So the rabbis of this day that Jesus walked the earth, a very popular teaching that they taught everybody is that when the Messiah comes, he will duplicate the miracle of manna. That one of the signs that the Messiah has arrived is that he will provide food and and he will do again 
this bread from heaven. That's probably the reason for why this crowd even brought it up. Because they saw him multiply bread, and, and now they immediately go back to the, to the Exodus story. Making food appear out of nowhere. You've got to be the Messiah. You're duplicating the miracle. It's got to be you. You need to be king. That's their understanding. It's misguided. And so Jesus drops truth bomb number two. He says to them, take your eyes off of the physical and focus them on God. That's truth bomb number two. He's like, hey, first of all, folks, Moses did not give you that bread. God gave you that bread. The emphasis here is on what God did, not what man did. So Jesus is trying to steer them away from the past and to help them see that now God is giving them a different kind of bread. Bread from heaven in the person of Jesus Christ. That past event that lasted for 40 years out in the wilderness is finished, but the 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 the, the the spiritual significance of it continues on in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 34. You'll understand what I mean. They said, always give us this bread. That's what they're saying. We want that. Then Jesus declared, I am that bread. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Does this conversation sound familiar from an earlier part of our study? What, what does this sound like? Doesn't this sound very much like the conversation Jesus had in John chapter 3 with the Samaritan woman by the well? And do you remember what he said to her? He, she says, you know, I, you know, they have a conversation about being thirsty and drawing water. And Jesus says, I offer you what? Living water. And, and if you drink from li this living water, you'll never thirst again. It's, it's, a, it's the same idea happening here. Jesus is talking about physical realities, water and food to help people understand that what they really need is Jesus to fulfill this hunger and thirst inside of them. Look at verse 40. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Living water, bread of life. Jesus, the Messiah, is offering something very special, a lot more special than one singular meal that's going to fill up your belly and you get hungry again. Jesus is talking about something that will last for eternal life, which brings us to the third truth bomb that he's going to drop on this crowd. Jesus came not just to sustain life, but to give life. Seven times in this conversation in John chapter 6, Jesus is going to refer to his coming down from heaven. These aren't just statements that declared him to be God. I mean, it's another one. It's all throughout John, these identifiers. He's saying, I am God. I came down here from heaven. But it's also Jesus trying to communicate that the Old Testament manna from heaven that they're referring to was God's provision to sustain physical life of the Israelites. But Jesus coming from heaven was the true bread of life, the true blessing from God that is given us eternal life. Look at verse 41. At this, the Jews were there, they began to grumble about him and said, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? 
And Jesus like, stop grumbling among yourselves. I know I'm going kind of fast, and all of this deserves more attention than what we're giving today, but they cannot get past the physical thing happening here. They see real bread, they see a real man in Jesus, and now they're saying, they're totally missing the boat here. Now that's Joseph's kid. How can he claim that he came down here from heaven? Jump down to verse 49. Jesus tries to help them understand. He says, hey, your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I'll give for the life of the world. You would think that by now, these people would start to understand or at least connect some dots that Jesus is not talking about real bread. He's not talking about real food that you put in your mouth, but rather he's talking about faith. He's talking about believing in the Son of God that came down from heaven and that by believing that truth, you will have eternal life. But it's sad to acknowledge they don't get it. They can't wrap their minds that Jesus is just talking about the gift of God, which was him. Believe in me. Look at verse 52, and this will wrap up our scripture reading today. Then, then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Okay, they're not getting it. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have, no, uh, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. But whoever feeds on this bread, he's saying, me, will live forever. Did things just get a little weird? Is Jesus actually talking about eating his literal flesh and drinking his literal blood? No. He's just trying to communicate a very significant truth because they don't understand. Which brings us to truth bomb number four. It's a little bit longer than the others. What Jesus is trying to communicate is just as you take food and drink within your body and it becomes a part of you, so you must receive Jesus within your innermost being so that he can give you life. Jesus is clearly speaking symbolically. Of course, he's not suggesting that you actually eat flesh. He's symbolically saying, you've got to completely take me in. You eat food, and if you think about it, eating food is a full-on commitment. You bite it, you chew it, you swallow it, and you digest it. It becomes a part of you. It's the same with Jesus. Believing in him is literally to take him in to the innermost parts of your life, your being. 
receiving him where he becomes a part of you. You and he become one. You don't just believe in him, you believe on him. And this was a very hard teaching for people to accept. At the end of the day, this crowd of people that chased after Jesus, they just wanted a meal. But Jesus wanted to give them eternal life. And sadly, when you read verse 66, it says many of those who were chasing after Jesus and wanted nothing but to be in his presence, they stopped following him and they turned their back and they went home. Many of those people who were a part of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 had their bellies filled in one day, ultimately went away hungry, spiritually hungry. Can you imagine being with Jesus and walking away spiritually hungry? That's what happened. This conversation with Jesus in the crowd, I believe it compels us to ask ourselves a very significant question tonight. And that question is this. Why am I following Jesus today? Why am I following Jesus? Because we just have a chapter-long example of a crowd that was following Jesus for all the wrong reasons. They completely rejected the one and only reason to ever follow after Jesus. So the question is tonight for us, and then we'll be done. Why in the world are you following Jesus? Why in the world are you here? Are you following Jesus because that's just what your friends are doing? Are you following Jesus because you're hoping that somehow it will enrich your life personally? Physically, you'll gain some things from it? Are you following Jesus because you believe the, the lie that being a Christian and having enough faith is going to make you a very wealthy person? Are you following Jesus because you're hoping that that following will help you get the attention of a special young lady or a special young man. Why are you following Jesus? Has it been so long for you that you've forgotten your motivation for choosing Christ? Have frustrations or broken relationships or changes? Have they sidetracked you over the years of the real reason why you started following Jesus in the first place? Why are you following Jesus? There's only one reason to follow Jesus, and there's only one reason to continue to follow Jesus. It is because Jesus himself is the true bread from God, motivated by love, who came down from heaven to rescue you from your sins and to give you eternal life. You follow him because you have eaten him up fully in faith. That's why you follow Jesus.
And as a result, we gather together to worship him, to celebrate what he's done, to honor him by our presence and our witness. We follow him so that we should go out and tell the world so that they can also follow him and experience the true bread from God and eat him up fully in faith and live for him until eternity comes. That's why you follow Jesus. Because he's changed your life. And you believe on him in faith. So why do you follow Jesus? Why do you still follow Jesus? And I believe it's a gut, quick, gut check question for all of us. Am I following him for all the wrong reasons? And if I am, how do I get back to the real reason, which is what I believe about him? And that's why we follow.